But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, we've got a new configuration. We're going to call this the chaos configuration. Endless, uh, endless forms <laughs> stretching just, into the void. Just mutable uh, flesh growths. Um, Wait, are you saying that the death sentence is a body without organs, perhaps? No, we're not. We, no, because uh, Langdon isn't here today, so we don't get to ever talk about Deleuze. <laughs> oh, we uh, gotta save it for him. That's the fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can also save me from having to hear about it. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to be uh, provide, to be able to provide that service to you, to give you a break from Deleuze. Yeah. Don't need to hear about any planes of imminence this week. Thank you very much. Although probably the book we're covering could probably be read in a oh, yeah. way, probably, like, probably I mean, that's true for everything right that's why the theory is completely useless <laughs> yeah exactly <It's> worthless <laughs> nonsense just babbling of some uh, italian idiots oh wow um, if, if langdon was here i know but luckily he isn't uh yeah. yet folks first ever uh gareth eden um episode collab we should have yeah we should have a um portmanteau name like brangelina Oh, Gideon. Uh, names. G- yeah. Gideon? Yeah, that's not very good. No. Um, well, yeah. E. Gareth just sounds like a robot version of you. Yeah. And which, which would be apt since we're talking about a book that has robots. Well, not robots even. They're well, replicants? Uh, androids? androids. Yeah. yeah. They, so the book is uh, Olga Raven's book, The Employees. Came out a few years back and was shortlisted for the 2021 International Booker Prize and like six or seven more quite prestigious awards. It, it was a big deal for what is essentially hard science fiction. Um, yeah, it's not just hard science fiction, it's like weird hard science fiction. Yeah, it, it like, it's like second wave, uh, just like everyone had started doing acid and started having weird ideas and. <laughs> people start to write in books like this. Yeah, so it's less Larry Niven and more Harlan Ellison, I mm, would say. Yeah. Yeah, or like the like late uh, Robert Heinlein where he started getting weird, like uh, yeah. Cat to Walk Through Walls, Heinlein. Man, um, that book. <laughs> I want to like it so much, but I don't. It's no Starship Troopers, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So Raven is, um, she's Danish, right? Mm-hmm, yep. And this was written in Danish originally and then mm-hmm. translated. Yep, translated by uh, Martin Aitken, who also did. Um, buh, 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 what's his. Uh, oh, fuck, I keep forgetting his name. He did uh, My Struggle. Oh, yeah. Carl uh, Ove something. But um, that guy. Yeah, he, he I... seems to specialize in Nordic languages. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the book has kind of like a Nordic vibe in some ways. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it's, it's basically like IKEA. Yeah, exactly. So I think it might be on purpose, might not be, but like it channels that idea. Well, I mean, it subverts that idea of the clean Nordic space. I would say mm, with the yeah. functional, the functional furniture and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly I, enough, uh, Raven wrote a book about forgotten texts by Tove Ditlevsen. I, I really hope I pronounced that name. Um correctly and like she's one of Denmark's obviously most famous um authors who 
won multiple awards and stuff like that, including uh, for the... Um, wait, is, is this the author of the movements or am I making a fool of myself? Oh, no, the movements was... Um, uh, 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 first, not Danish, Finnish. And... Yeah, Finnish, right? Yeah. Oh, God, I totally forgot her name, but... Um... But she wrote, um, the, I think, the Copenhagen trilogy or something like super famous that's based in Copenhagen. So I, I think it's interesting that Raven, you know, was a researcher of her work. Yeah, she wrote the Copenhagen trilogy. Yeah, um, I, I don't know of that. Yeah, I've never but, read uh, it, but when I was like, you know, researching this book, I came across this, and it's an interesting tidbit, I think. Hmm. Yeah, like I, I'm totally blind to like Scandinavian literature. Yeah, uh, the only like Scandinavian uh, literature I've read is uh, Nut Hampson, who um, had an unfortunate uh, career turn after he read after he wrote The Hunger. Yeah, uh, but um, there's apparently a lot of incredibly good. Uh, Haldor Laxness is apparently a, a one to check out. Yeah, uh, Lagdan and I have been meaning to cover Sion. He's um, Icelandic. He's written a bunch of stuff, including a bunch of poetry, but he also writes like weird magic realism cool. um like retellings of the argonauts set in like the modern period and weird stuff like that um but he's like very famous and i think he yeah he lives in um lived and worked in london but he's currently in Reykjavik. Well, mm-hmm. i mean iceland we could go on right they have their own like separate sort of uh culture yeah that there's like a it's like a weirdly productive country for was like i think just what like two hundred thousand people living there mostly yeah. uninhabited yeah and yet they produce a hell of a it's not just bjork it's there's a a lot of good bands because it's it's because it's dark yeah and all, there's no trees the and so, there's no trees and volcanoes yeah. are we mm-hmm. just like listing icelandic <laughs> landmarks at this point uh, elves etc <laughs> uh, uh, meteorite swords i would assume oh yeah it, yeah. I mean, it looks cool. It looks like uh, Death Stranding in Iceland. I'd be very productive if I lived there. <laughs> it does look and, like um, Yeah, uh, Tove Janssen is the lady who wrote the Moomins. Oh, uh, yeah. Her book, um, The Summer Book, it's like a adult's book. It's semi-autobiographical, well, pretty much autobiographical, about her just living on a nice island during the summer. It has that same Moomins kind of yeah. uh, utopian almost anarchistic vibe of just like let's just hang out in a nice house and chill should we um, should we do the moomins on death sentence <laughs> i've got all i've got like i love moomins oh yeah uh, moomins are amazing incredible um at least like, my my generation of like israelis all grew up on the moomins I don't think it wasn't huge in the UK but it was um so on the BBC would put on a little block of like international cartoons before the like the cartoons people really wanted to see came on yeah one of those was the moomins it was quite badly translated and uh, <laughs> was it was just a terrible dub it was like 80s anime kind of things like battle of the planets kind of level got it uh, but because it was so odd i i just gravitated towards it and when i when i got older um, I decided to just like as an adult read the Moomin's books and yeah. read like Tove Janssen's other stuff because she's just really good. And so uh, I think, yeah, I love the Moomin's. Interestingly, this is where the conversation like loops around because that like very elusive sense of oddness hmm. is also true for the employees. Right? Yeah. Like you can't really 
pin it down, just like with the movements in a way, right? Like you can't point to one thing that is especially weirder than everything else, but there's this vibe to it that is very unsettling. Mm. Yeah, it, I, even our earlier description of it as hard sci-fi, that's not adequate, but also yeah. calling it some sort of like elevated literary sci-fi is inadequate too. I don't want to... Yeah. So do we want to do like uh, the dry synopsis? Hell yeah, Langdon's not here. We can talk about what the, what's actually in in the book. In the book, what's <laughs> yeah. happening inside? The just, book. I can just read the back cover. Um, <laughs> I won't. So it's about there's a a spacecraft called the Six Thousand ship. Uh, it's crewed by both biological uh, humans and humanoids who are some sort of android, partly biological kind of replicant sort of beings who are created on Earth by the um, creator of the ship and the owner of the company that runs the ship yeah uh, the ship has um we don't even know what it's like purpose is at a point really but it seems to be going in some direction and on the way it found a planet called new discovery and in a valley on this planet there was found some artifacts and i'm using like the most loose sense of the term because uh, uh, probably one of the big like other texts that I was thinking about with this was um, Roadside Picnic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The original, not not Stalker, Roadside Picnic, very important uh, one there, <laughs> and 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 to a certain extent the video game Stalker, because uh, these artifacts are alive but not, and they're conscious but not, and they they defy redescription on like pretty much every level they are really alien in a very profound way they're not yeah things or people or animals or objects or art um although they are actually based on real world things because this book was um came out of a collaboration between olga ravin and a um a D- danish sculptor called uh Leia uh, Golditti uh, Hesterland. Totally mispronounced that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm probably going to put uh, the some of her work as the artwork for this episode, but I'm also going to like encourage people to just Google her work because yeah. that's what these objects are kind of supposed to look like. Uh, they're mar- marble, um, very s- smooth forms, uh, kind of childlike yeah i think what, what what the original installation and the book do very well and have in common is that your eyes whether the physical eyes you're using to view the artwork or like your literary eyes which is the narrative you're telling yourself it kind of slides off of the objects mm. right there's like not a lot to hang on to um and, and that's the case with the characters in the book as well right they they make up these names that are mostly jokes, so they can ground the objects in reality because the objects themselves are like faintly, I don't know, to the side of like mm, things that are yeah. actually happening. We call and, it like the the diamond egg, something like that. It's, yeah, you can kind and of it, imagine a diamond egg, but it's, right, it's but, not going to be anything like that. Exactly, and they say that they say that in the book. Well, it's not really an egg, right, in any way. Or if you spend time with it in in the room. Um, then you'll see how inadequate the name is, but it's kind of how we refer to them because we need names uh, or we need to refer to things, right? As 
well, humans slash androids, which is also an interesting, uh, like, blurring of the lines that the book does. Mm. Um, just to complete the synopsis, by the way, spoilers if anyone doesn't want this spoil, but it's really not a book for the plot, right? Um, <laughs> you're not going to no. be grabbing the edge of your seat. Eventually, um, things start to break down, where mostly the androids become, well, class conscience, I would say, right? Mm, they yeah. start to conceive themselves as a class and as an oppressed class, and they rise up against their uh, human uh, crew members. And in in response, corporate central sends an HR team basically, and that's who we're they're making notes and interviewing people and recording them, and that's what we're reading hmm. uh, yeah. these recordings of the interviews. And at the end, they decide to exterminate the entire ship, basically. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, its subtitle is a workplace novel of the twenty second century. Um, have you ever read a workplace novel? Like, I'm trying to think of a workplace novel. Yes. So, as a genre. Yeah, so Are interestingly. So before Jeff Vandermeer wrote Born, he wrote The Situation, which is a very, very short novella about people working after the apocalypse in an office of the company, the mm-hmm. bioengineering company that is the only thing that survived the apocalypse. Is, is like, that the same one that was in Born? I remember that. Yeah, being exactly. A, yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's like, like a prequel. And the one after as well, yeah. Yeah, so the situation used to be standalone, and then eventually he spun it off into Born. Um, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a rare book, but it's like less in publication. I actually have a signed copy, which is uh, one of the best gifts I've been given. Um, and it's about, you know, again, the workplace and how they use bioengineering to, like, you know, settle all the little office disputes. Um, mm. But other than that, well, there's Jeff Vandermeer's second um, Area X book, um, Authority. Yeah, sorry, yeah, Authority. Yeah, um, which is all about office paranoia, right? Mm. So recurring theme there in his works. Other than yeah. that, not sure. Like, yeah, like for the amount of time people spend in work and offices, there are. I, I can think of literally one book that I've read that's set in a, a realistic office as opposed to a sci-fi one, and that was came out in must be like 2002 it's called um and then we came to it the end it was mm. all written in a uh, second person so we we being the people in the office did this we did that Interesting. um it, I, I remember it being really good but it came out like yeah 2002 2003 there was, was also a book released i think in 2021 called several people are typing and oh yeah I, that's about that, yeah someone who kind of like got uploaded into slack <laughs> I feel that it yeah was me. Sure. So and it's like yeah it's about it's about garrett um <laughs> little known fact he is currently in slack right now mm-hmm. um so it's all in slack messages like the entire book mm. and it's supposed to be you know i mean anti-capitalist to the extent that you know it, it, it's supposed to be pretty liberal but uh it is somewhat critical of like office and remote work and um oh wait sorry the author apparently told TechCrunch capitalism is bad and bodies are prisons but the only thing worse wow. than having one is not having one so <laughs> maybe it's more radical than I I've, I've never not had a body yeah that no. sounds terrible though yeah um but yeah workplace novels are incredibly rare yeah 
I, I know it's a cliche to say that all literary fiction is about people in uh, like Ivy League universities having affairs, but um, there's a hell of a lot more of those books than there is uh, workplace novels, given yeah. the amount of people who have white collar jobs or just any job. Uh, work doesn't come up in fiction a whole lot unless that work is spy or policeman. Yeah, and when it even when it does come up, it's like either a backdrop, right? Like the first fifteen minutes of a horror movie, where where everything is okay, and you see like the tedium of the day to day that is then disrupted by whatever horror is happening, or it's like what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a dampening effect to slow down the plot, right? Mm. So like a bunch of really high stakes events happen, and then you get a scene where they're just in the office, and it's it's breezed through i right? just as filler or like a um like a joining segment instead of something in its own right with its own existence and interesting mm. ideas yeah and, and like as a workplace novel i don't i don't know that this works as one I, it works great as weird slipstreamy sci-fi but it i don't know if i if i read this and i'm thinking oh yeah that's just like work <laughs> yeah, I encounter no? uh, objects I can't describe at work all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm in one of those like uh, trendy serviced offices, so they probably will start putting indescribable objects around. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting because in TV, we are starting to see kind of like workplace um, creations. And the biggest one that was just released is Severance, right? Which I is love very... that. A, yeah. a fantastic show and yeah, I got brilliant. some similar vibes right because in Severance mm. they do the same thing with alienation right alienation from objects like you take a perfectly normal object well in Severance right it's perfectly mundane and it becomes incredibly sinister mm. in, in yeah. sort of ways because the corporation makes it sinister whereas here it's kind of like the corporation is sending you to collect these objects for some sort of purpose that you're not even told um, what it is and then the objects themselves are just faintly non-human and alienation maybe in the literal sense, right? They're like literally made by aliens or maybe they are living entities, right? Maybe they are the aliens. Um, so it, it's an interesting parallel to draw mostly because I think both works are trying to get to the bottom of the alienation that we feel from, like you said, the swanky designed semi-high-tech service industry spaces that we work in. Mm. Um, like, I had the... I don't know if you've had the opportunity to work at, like, several WeWorks all across the planet. I've um, not been in a WeWork so far. Yeah. I've been in, like, uh, kind of WeWork copies, like... Yeah, you are very fortunate. Um, mm. So I got the chance to, like, work at a WeWork location in Tel Aviv and then fly to New York and go to a WeWork location there, and I was in the same place. Yeah. I, it felt like the same place. If you close the windows and I couldn't see outside, I would not know the difference because everything was, you know, by the way, faintly Scandinavian, uh, not Scandinavian, yeah, Scandinavian in design, right? Mm. Like wood paneling and uh, these very demure plants and muted colors. That's very, very common in like corporate design these days. Um, it was a very disorienting experience, right? Like stepping yeah. into a space in New York and not being able to geolocate yourself because everything looks the same. Mm. Yeah, it, it's like being on the internet. It's mm. wherever you are in the world. If you log into Twitter, it's always Twitter. Yeah, for sure. I, and... I would say it, 
yeah, go ahead. And that's essentially kind of WeWork's pitch. It was, you know, we're not just a uh, company that sells office space because there's a million of those. We're a, we're an internet company. And yeah. what we do is we use data to create these perfect spaces and uh, lay them out in a perfect way. And that's going to be replicable everywhere in the world. And, um, yeah, in, in that way, we are we are creating these spaces that are like websites, infinitely replicable uh, it's like object oriented office spaces. Yeah. And it's interesting because the underlying assumption under that, or rather what they're trying to um, well, market to you as a worker, is you want this. This is something <laughs> you want. Like you've always wanted a nondescript office space that looks the same. And you like look around at the people who work with you and you're like, did any of you request this? I, I don't remember requesting this. Mm. Um, and then in the employees, uh, there's much of the same. In the sense that it's very obvious that like the social hierarchies created by the corporation, they have the system of um, roles, right? Like first cadet, second cadet, third security officer, and so on. It's very obviously not a good system to manage a workforce under, right? Like the employees have a, a tough time using that system. Like they get confused between individuals. And there's a part in the book where I think it, the name is the rank first cadet is used to refer to like three separate people. Yeah, and um, I mean, that was something that just took me out of the whole workplace novel thing for me because it's yeah. it, it, the this the six thousand ship works as a military. It's it's a, it's a military spaceship. Yeah, just like Star Trek. It's um and that's not something we find in office spaces. They they want the exact opposite. They want that we work um, flat horizontal hierarchies. Uh, your your boss is your best friend that yeah, kind of uh, style it, of things. And that's arguably much more alienating than a military hierarchy where you actually know where you are. For sure. And it's, it's also more nefarious because, well, Raven kind of like uses the employees to imply that they want uniformity and conformity and for everybody to be the same. But it's actually more nefarious than that because they want everybody to be their own individual and they use the language of growth and self-care and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But they just want you to be an individual so they can monetize that individuality to keep you at your workplace. Yeah. Right? They want to know your yeah. preferences so they can order them to the office so you don't go home to consume them instead. And I agree in that sense that the the, the novel kind of like misses that vibe in, in yeah, certain it, ways. It, it seems like the offices it satirized in are the ones from like office space, uh, 1950s cubicle culture, everyone yeah. wearing the same clothing uh, you know it, it, it's not the kind of post silicon valley offices that we're all subjected you know, to nowadays i wonder if if we were uh danes right like would we feel the same is that the is that the atmosphere that's more prevalent in copenhagen i actually have a friend who works that i could ask him like maybe oh, no, uh, like, copenhagen is like a really cool city they, they yeah. have like that they, they totally have um yeah, I've worked with other agencies in all over Europe, and it, it's all the same. Got like, it. Yeah. Everywhere is um, has gone on to the Silicon Valley thing now. Even Got it. you even find places like that in Africa. And well, I mean, uh, what what's the EU for if not to uh, spread cultural hegemony and, and conformity? Yeah, specifically American cultural hegemony. Yeah, well, well sure. done, EU. Uh, so, they're doing a great job at, yeah. at that at that very specific thing that no one asked for. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I think if we maybe, 
you know, zoom in on on the the weirdness of the book and how it conveys it. I think that was the thing that was most attractive to me in the book. Mm, yeah, and something that I actually felt a lot of kinship with because Raven uses smell a lot. Mm. She uses scent. Some of these objects have these smells that they make people smell all over the ship, not just it's not just the object that smells a certain way. It kind of changes their perceptions. Which is very interesting because that's an impossible scent to write about, mm. right? Like obviously describing visually, that's the easiest way, sense to write about. And even something more elusive like touch, you can elicit the sensation of touch through writing, right? Like you can give people goosebumps, for example. And noise can also be described because it's quite um, a violent sort of sense, right? Like explosions and. Um, drum beats and stuff like that that can really get you emotional but you don't see a lot of writers using smell mm. um, because it's such I would say it's the most alien of our senses like describing smells is impossible even in the day to day like someone asks you what does that smell like and you just you don't really have the metaphors to do it because smell is so mm. different yeah apart from a few like very easy to describe ones like sulfur like rotten eggs or methane yeah. or something if describing like the smell of bacon the smell of bacon is just the smell of bacon yeah exactly you, you just don't have the words and uh, interestingly yeah. the, that draws even sulfur i think is a really interesting example because you're referencing like this primal like this ur event of a rotten egg but like i've never smelled a rotten egg <laughs> and yet when you tell me that sulfur smells like a rotten egg i have the exact perception of what that smells like, even though I've never encountered the event that it references. And that kind of reminded me of um, Mievel's Embassy Town, mm-hmm. right? Where this race of aliens, oh, yeah. um, the older idioms reference actual events in their history. Mm. Um, and, and bringing it back to the employees, I think there's some lines in common between those novels because their weirdness lies in basically pointing at human communication and saying, isn't this odd? Like that this even works, that we're like even able to communicate. It's such a broken and messy tool, and yet we are able to use it to say things about the world and collaborate. Hmm. Yeah, by having the humanoids on the crew, we can, rather rather can kind of have people around that have this like almost childlike attitude to communication. So they they don't. They're all pretty stupid, right? Yeah. I think they're innocent. They're very, mm. yeah. They're they're basically babies. Yeah. Um, you know, they're only a few years old at this point. Is they have the knowledge to do the stuff on the ship, but they don't really. They 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 are toddlers, and they even like put stuff in their mouths. That they, they all the things that have been socialized out of us. Uh, they continue to do, and they especially do it around the objects. They'll like touch the objects with their the mouths and uh i mean they they take the the diamond egg right and the marble mm-hmm. and they just pop it in their mouth yeah and they just like, walk around with it in their <laughs> mouths like n- no adult would do that with anything especially an alien artifact but yeah. um they they relate to their senses differently like we don't if i see an object i don't want to know what it tastes like or even smells like I yeah. might, I, I, I have a sensory tick where I occasionally like touch things, like I'll t- like I'll wrap my fingers along the wall or something. But um, 
yeah, most people live very unsensual lives, and especially with certain senses like taste and smell. And obviously, there's a good reason for that. You know, like we shouldn't generally put things in our mouths. Um, but uh, yeah, these humanoids don't seem to have that. They're still either childlike or they just experience senses in a wholly different way to humans. Yeah. And if I compare it to, if I if we bring in some maybe like contemporary philosophy that this might be related to, it instantly makes me think of object-oriented ontology. Hmm. Well, does this one up? Yeah, that, that was going to be for the second half. But okay, oh, okay. You know. Well, we we can do music now and then talk about <laughs> oh oh oh. I don't want to. Uh, now no, let's. Um, okay. Well, so, let me see. We're about twenty something minutes in. Twenty nine. Oh, that's, that's actually perfect. We said thirty minutes. It's twenty nine minutes ten seconds. It's almost as if I was looking at the counter when I said it. I was not. I was looking at the pictures of the objects. <laughs> yes, I'm immersing myself in this book. Um, so okay, uh, I'll I'll do my one first, I guess. Yeah, go for Cause, it. Because it's two mold, uh, they are back, baby. Oh yeah. Um, so two mold have kind of two streams. They release stuff on twenty bucks spin. That's their albums, like um, oh, what was it called? Uh, Planetary clairvoyance and uh, one before that. And they also release and self-produce their own stuff. Uh, so they've released like a bunch of t- quite small um, like EPs. Uh, Bottomless Perdition, The Molten, Cerulean Salvation, and the new one, which is Aperture of Body. And they're, they're probably the most beautifully designed death metal tapes I've ever seen. Um, you'll know them if you see them. They're really beautifully done. But um, so this is free, a free track uh, album. The first track is just um, electronic bleeps and bloops. But Aperture of Body, the title track, is just great. Two mold out song. Um, as good as anything on, on their regular records. Like, as good as anything in death metal today. Because they're one of like, the, the great bands, along with like Blood Incantation, Venom Prism, and so on. Um, yeah, just a, a brilliant band. have just come back and was like, hey, here's two great songs for everyone. Uh, it's on their... Um, it's on their Bandcamp right now. You can get the you can get the tape. I think it's one copy per. It's very limited edition. Looks great. Uh, so yeah, here's Aperture of Body. <laughs> Oh, 
So object-oriented ontology is like, okay, it's not a thing. <laughs> Let's get that okay, out good. there. It's not, it's not a thing. It's more of, uh, when I say it's not a thing, being a bit more serious, like there's been a lot of doubt cast that its validity is like a philosophical movement or notion or, or idea. Um, but I think it misses the point of what object-oriented ontology is, which is an aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or a literary movement almost, um, containing a bunch of contemporary writers, perhaps most relevant to our discussion is Timothy Morton. Mm-hmm. Um, who I believe is non-binary. I'm not sure what pronouns they use, but I can check in a second. And the entire idea of object-oriented ontology is this idea that the basic unit of existence, whichever existence we might be talking about, whether it's human existence or natural existence and so on, um, is, is the object. And that the object itself retreats. right? Like when you look at an object, it does not communicate to you all of its properties. Mm-hmm. And then in a sort of like Kantian way almost, you can never know the object to its fullest. So uh, as a philosophical idea, I'll, I'll, some of the criticisms have been, yeah, okay, we get it. Like Kant did this 400 years ago when we've been dealing with the consequences ever since. Yeah, um, fuck you, Kant. Yeah, fuck that guy. He was also a huge, huge racist. So, <laughs> um, but, but then also like it's not rigorous enough if you apply it, there's not like, you know, a, a set amount of conclusions and so on. But what it does is work very well with weird fiction. Because mm-hmm. if everything you perceive as an object and all of the objects are, are, are constantly receding from you, but you still experience them, it creates that uncanny, right? The unheimlich, if I want to be f- fancy and use German, um, that is at the base of weirdness, right? Like, something that is completely alien to you is scary in a certain way, but it's not weird. And then something that's completely familiar is obviously not weird. It's in the center that Mm. these things, the weirdness arises, right? The the familiar, unfamiliar. Mm. So if everything is an object and everything is essentially unknowable as an object, then everything potentially is weird. And that allows Timothy Morton to write about climate change is weird and uh, mm. capitalism is weird and your car is weird and the field <laughs> is as odd and, and so on. And that's yeah. very much the case with the employees, right? Mm. Yeah, Morton like, was the guy who coined the term high project, right? As yeah, well, I think popularized changes. Yeah, yeah popularized change high project. Uh, yeah, if exactly. anyone's ever seen the film um, Don't Look Up, that's preachy liberal um, Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Yeah. Came out a little while ago. Uh, the creator of that movie their production company is called high project industries right because so, they apparently don't understand what a high project is and oh they no they don't just make climate change just be an object i.e an asteroid yeah uh, i mean that's the opposite of what you'd like to do if you want to write about climate change uh, as a hyper object right like literally yeah. just distill it into an object <laughs> yeah that's um, a big rock if anyone wants to like feel this vibe that i'm talking about then um, I'm, I'll make two recommendations. One is Timothy Morton's book, Dark Ecology. Fair warning, it's not an easy read. It assumes that you are familiar with uh, Kant <laughs> and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but then if you want uh, a science fiction or a literary work, then Elvia Wilkes Oval does a really, really good job at like getting this idea across. And also the employees, right? Like, hmm. what if I, if I wanted to you know, 
put you in a room and put a bowling pin on a table and then say, ooh, this pin is so scary, it's so weird, it's so odd. That's like what Raven is basically trying to do with, with her book, right? More or less, yeah. I, yeah. Um, but, yeah, she does, well, she does two things. I mean, first, yeah, there's the unheimlich, uh, odd, receding prop, uh, property of these objects because they are literally alien and they're so strange. But also there's the, um, there's what that does politically to the crew. Yeah. And how encountering these strange objects um, basically causes a, a slave revolt on board the ship. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's, so she's not, so that was another thing I had a, a, not a problem with, but yeah, kind of a problem with is the, the hypothesis that the book has that we can encounter art and these, these things are, are basically art objects. They are, uh, Leah, uh, Goldetti, Helsterland's sculptures. Yeah. And we encounter them, and we and they change us um, on some like subtle level by being so uncanny and so odd to us. And then that breaks us out of the everyday, and then we can affect some sort of political change. Uh, it sounds like a very glib way of putting it, but it that idea kind of underpins a hell of a lot of um, avant-garde art. You know, yeah. That's what... Uh, Robin Gristle is trying to do. That's what surrealism is trying to do. It's that idea that we, we see something really weird, it unsettles us, and we carry that unsettledness over to everyday life, which we then change for the better. Yeah, I and think I, I agree with you 100%. But I think if I'm trying to like put myself in the shoes of the book and kind of like be its uh, defense attorney, kind of. Against me. Thank you. I think the, well, confrontation is uh, where interest lies, right? Um, so I think that what happens is that they're all searching for answers f- for these objects and what's happening to them and why the 6,000 ship is even there. And they get completely different answers from, quote-unquote, management um, if you're a human or if you're an android, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a human, you get told something, about the mission, I get to be clear, very hazy and nondescript and non-helpful. But if you're an android, you basically get told to shut up and do your job. Hmm. Right? And and the tension that builds there is what starts the actual revolt. Right? Like, why are we being treated differently? We're both made, importantly, right? We're both cloned or made in some way. Um, but we, we, for some reason, get to glimpse this very narrow version of the world whereas you are treated differently by the powers that be. Now, what I agree with you, and this is like to tie it back to what you said and that I agree with entirely, is that I think Raven kind of like doesn't explain the different stages of how that revolt happens. It just kind of happens. Mm, yeah. Like they're pissed off, and then from they're pissed off to they stage a coup, there's nothing in between, right? They're like angry, and they gather and they kill a bunch of people and then there's suddenly like a movement that's taking over the ship and there's no like maybe it's because she wanted the book to be short but there's no like interesting conflict there's no um, hierarchy that gets formed there's no there's no discussion there's it's just like jumps from 
I am unpleased to I am a fully fledged rebel in like mm. a blink of an eye. Yeah. Yeah, which I think kind of gives the impression that almost the, the objects are guiding people. Yeah. That and there was a, a note I I wrote down early in it, the book, uh, on statement sixty two, which is are the objects making people interpret them? As in are the objects somehow forcing people to look at them and think about them and have ideas about them and you know how much agency do these objects have and how much are they actually the ones behind the rebellion yeah and in, in a sense yeah it's not just that they're behind the rebellion they're also like the active polarity resisting management hmm. um so i didn't write down which segment this is from but at, at one point one of the interviewees says I know the smell, by the way, smell. I know the smell of oak moss because you've planted it inside me, just as you've planted the idea that I should love one man only, be loyal to one man only, and that I should allow myself to be courted. All of us here are condemned to a dream of romantic love, even though no one I know loves in that way or lives that kind of a life. Yet these are the dreams you've given us. So... Mm-hmm. You is management in this case, right? They're, they're talking to HR and uh, criticizing the company. So it's not just the objects that have planted things inside of these of this crew, but also they're fighting the ideas planted there by um, the corporate management that they're working under. Mm. Which again so- sounds like a very 1950s yeah criticism of management. You know, this this is the thing the the beat generation were rebelling against. It's not. It doesn't really feel like something that I encounter every day. My my management wants me to be an individual, and they want me to dress weird and to um, be the only queer person in the office, which I have the dubious uh, honor of being at the moment. <laughs> and um, it's not a big office, so that's like fine. And um, yeah, they 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 want to celebrate diversity, and they they would never think of. Um, put in any sort of uh, restraint on anyone because they want to sort of be, be free and uh, take initiative. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So it's interesting, like, she almost captures that point that we also spoke about in the first half um, of, you know, how they use individuality to assimilate us rather than actual, actual collective collectivism or collective violence. Um, well, she describes there's a passage, again, about those dreams well, the interviewee describes, they say, all I want is to be assimilated into a collective human community where someone braids my hair with flowers and white curtains sway in a warm breeze, where every morning I wake up and drink a glass of chilled iced tea, drive a car across a continent, kick the dirt, fill my nostrils with the air of the desert, and move in with someone, get married, bake cookies, push a stroller, learn to play an instrument, or dance a waltz. And that was... Like that was the closest the book got to actually capturing the feeling because what the dreams are telling them, live a full life, mm. right? Like fulfill yourself, be this amazing person. You know, my workplace has a gym and mentoring to help me become like the best person I can be. And like, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do any of that, right? But they're selling me this like happy, perfect version of me because of course, the bottom line is that this this quote ends with, I think I've seen this all in your educational material. Um, is that right? And then ends, of course, with the poignant, what are cookies? 
um, which I found to be um, a good a good line. And but then very frustratingly, very shortly after this, she goes back to this idea of like assimilating you into a collective, where someone says, "I put on my yellow headgear. Once I'm wearing it, the person I am recedes into the background, and I become the first officer." That's not really like how anyone thinks about these things. I would say it's not the incentives or the punishments that are placed in front of you when you take on a role in a company. Hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it, it does constantly seem to be talking about the the idea of the office rather than the reality of it. Yeah, and I I, I would love a, a a book that talks about the reality of offices nowadays. And just how alienated how they do everything that this nineteen um, fifties cubicle office does, but they do it in a cloying, twee way that you can't really talk back to, and and which people are much more um, much more engrossed by. Like people genuinely enjoy this stuff in a way that uh, you know, people would moan about their um, cubicles. In yeah. So I think what ha- what helps me think about this change, which I think is very interesting, is sort of like a man. I sound like such a douchebag, but <laughs> sort of like an, a pneumatics of power, in the mm-hmm. sense that if you think about power as something that flows and acts like water or electricity, mm-hmm. it's always going to want to take the path of least resistance, right? So yeah. wh- where power needs to control you overtly by expanding a lot of power, expanding a lot of power, or maybe heat, if you want to think about it that way, like a lot of conflict and attention to itself, it would rather do that in a more subtle way if it can, Mm. right? So if two paths exist and one of them is very flagrant and one of them is very subtle, then power will tend to choose the subtle solution and there's nothing more subtle than making you police yourself, right? So if I can take people out of the cubicle but still keep them as subservient by giving them everything that they supposedly want, that is way, way more subtle and way easier to maintain. Wait a second. This is postscript for society control. You are doing Deleuze. We said <laughs> no Deleuze. <laughs> well, I'm doing Foucault, so I don't know how much you want close. to get into the discussion of like, <laughs> yeah, is it close? Is it not? But I mean, yeah, this is postmodernism 101 right and i think mm-hmm. the employees kind of tries to be a postmodernist novel in many ways but i agree with you that it kind of falls short in many like it seems like we're saying this is a bad book and it's, yeah, it's well, I, really I'd not lo- yeah i really love this book yeah um like yeah like, like i i feel like the like we, we can be um we can critique this because i like it so much oh yeah for sure yeah you critique it's, the things you love like that's um, sure. yeah it's uh that um James Baldwin quote about uh, mm. I can critique America because I love it. Yeah. Um, well, I don't love, love America. America. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, uh, so it, I think it's a very good book in this, as a literary work, right? Like mm. it gets its point across. The, the vibe is amazing. The aesthetics of it. Uh, I wouldn't say the characters are engrossing because they're meant to be stand-ins, right? It's not the yeah. point of the book to explore characters. But then yeah, on the yeah. ideological level, I think it kind of fails. Mm. Yeah, there's a there was a good... Uh, article by a political group in this country called Plan C. Uh, Mark Fisher was associated with them at one point, where they talk about each phase of capitalism uh, having its dominant affect. 
mm-hmm. like in the early like workhouses, you would be the dominant affect was you know, fear, misery, and because you'd be you know if you didn't fulfill your quota, you'd get whipped and so on. And then by the time you get into the you know, uh, like post nineteen fifties cubicles, the dominant affect is boredom, and yeah. then you, you obviously get like the beats and hippies and uh, breaking out of the office space, and you get the um, uh, Apple advert where someone throws the computer through the thing. You know, yeah. from the eighties. Yeah, yeah. And and then when you get to our phase of capitalism, the dominant affect is anxiety because we're having to uh, do personal development plans where we have to uh, think for ourselves about what our future career is going to be instead of just being on a, a track. And we've got to um, constantly prove ourselves and we've got to be available around the clock and so on. And yeah, the um, the 6,000 ship is, is at that second stage of boredom before the um, art shows up, before these objects show up. And by being so unsettling and strange they break everyone out of that it, 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 it's just gonna sound like the worst chris it, it's basically that apple advert <laughs> everyone's in their little totalitarian world and then someone comes along and breaks them out by f- smashing the thing it it's it is kind of like that um yeah but i love it it's a really great book <laughs> i think just for the yeah, ju- just for the attempt at using smell as your, not primary, but like one of your main sensory drives in a book. This is something that everybody that likes literature that, quote unquote, does things, right? Um, mm. Just for that, it's worth reading. And also just for the, well, I sound like a Twitter Zoomer, right? For, for the vibes, right? Um, yeah. It, it has very specific and, and I, I've never felt quite the same way when i was reading a book as i was reading mm. this right yeah like and it it makes it from the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's a very evocative book but it, it isn't i i know i like know nothing about how this ship looks yeah i, I, I couldn't if you asked everyone who had read this book to draw it you'd get a million different answers because for sure i can't a- and, and the planet itself there. yeah in a sense, the things that are most described are the objects themselves, right? Which is, mm. of course, intentionally ironic, right? Those things that are most unknowable are those that the author spends the most time actually describing. Like, we don't know how anyone looks. Mm. I think there's yeah. a few references to color of hair and color of eyes, but that's about it. Mm. Um, we don't really know if, if the humanoids look that different from humans, if they this can be distinguished. Yeah. Um, we don't, yeah, we don't know about uniforms. We don't know about what the ship looks like, how big it is. We assume it's quite large. Yeah. Is it like uh, Starship Enterprise large? Is it a huge generation ship that's like got what we're saying is people? is that it's a very weird book. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I think odd. Odd would be the adjective yeah. I would use. Uh, what, what's uh, Mark Fisher's? It, it's is it weird or eerie in Mark Fisher's terminology? I yeah, that's be... that's a good question. I think it would be. I think it'd be weird. Yeah, it's weird because the eerie is, by the way, uh, Deleuze, right? Like it's the thing that haunts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the eerie is when something that is missing is suddenly present again, right? Like mm-hmm. that's why a ghost story is eerie rather than weird because essentially ghosts are saying there was an absence, but now the thing that was absence absent sorry returns, but it doesn't return the same. Yeah. Um, which also, of course, um, 
is a reference to uh, difference. Aiterita's difference. How lots of French people, unsurprisingly, um, well, you know, even when you make a copy of something, it is a copy, but you can tell the difference between them, right? Uh, they don't have the same relationship with the referred. One of them is a symbol, whereas one of them is a symbol in a kind of different way, and that's the difference. And eerie comes into play here. With the, the novel, the tension or the weirdness comes from the, like I said, the alien, right? The, the familiar style. It's not something that was missing in our returns. It's something new that invades, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that doesn't just mean the um, the objects themselves. Are, obviously, that's very much yeah. them. It's even the, the, the prose style, even the whole vibe of the book is yeah it's yeah. weird rather it's um yeah it's hard to describe in its way and, and a lot of things i don't want to make it sound like it's so avant-garde that it's unreadable because it's it's very readable for a story that has functionally speaking no characters in yeah. in the sense that there's a person who you know a guy that has problems and then solves them we don't really. I, I think one ca- one person, a funeral director, appears more than once. Yeah, no, maybe I think there are a few. Yeah, maybe right because they're replaceable. Um, mm. But there's there's a few of them that kind of recur, but in a very faint way. Like yeah, I, I initially attempted to try and say, okay, statement that this is the yeah. same person is in statement this. <laughs> that did not work. That was yeah. I tried to. I, I also read right before this. I read. Um, Mark Z. Danielewski's The 50-Year Sword. Um, and that also... That. Yeah, it's like a poem, a free-form poem that narrates a whole story. And because it's him, right, he can't just do anything straightforward. So all the speakers oh, no. are denoted by differently colored quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, uh, it's it's quite good. I, I, I sort of liked it. Langdon, by the way, did not like it. Um, <laughs> he says it's and I'm quoting mid. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was, so I was in the, that riddle-solving mood of like trying to understand who the speakers are, but then I gave up because it's really not the point. Yeah, uh, the, I, there was a when the captain turns up for one statement. Yeah, I, I really love that that one section. Yeah, it's, it's, in general, it's a, a fantastic a fantastic book. I think that. Um, it's definitely evocative of, if not events and like, you know, grabs you by the throat. It, it's, you, you'll just feel different when reading it. Mm, yeah. And it more than like talking about uh, what it's like to live, be in an office or what it's like to uh, be some sort of subaltern class that rebels against uh, the dominant power. It, it, it is, it, it does what it was originally supposed to do, which is to be a companion piece to these yeah. works of art. Yeah. This was supposed to be only three pages when um, they first <laughs> collaborated, but it's 136 it's now and won multiple awards and it's totally overshadowed the thing it was supposed to be um, a, like a little addendum to. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Like the worlds and the objects themselves as they exist in our reality and how they're overshadowed ironic yeah. uh, result for this kind of uh, work should we do some avant-garde music to to send us off i i think so yes yeah i think uh, i think that would uh, be very apt right now so there's a person italian by the way oh, um God. andrea 
Brusone, I guess I would say it if I was being racist, um, but it's Italian, so it's fine. Um, who goes by? Yeah, it goes by the stage name Bekol Kilish, um, and this is on I Void Hangle. And if you know what that means, then mm-hmm. you probably know what's coming. Probably the best experimental avant-garde label in the metal spaces today. And just to uh, give you a sense of how eclectic this is, it features guest spots by. Colin Master mm-hmm. of Kralis, Gorgats, Behold the Octopus, etc. Um, Gabriel Gramaglia from Cosmic Putrefication and Vertebrae Atlantis and a bunch of other really good bands. Um, Eugene from Flesh God Apocalypse. Um, okay. Romain Goulon from Sadist and Necrophagist. It's just like a list of really interesting musicians from all walks of weird experimental death metal. And the work itself... I'm going to steal from the first Bandcamp review on this album. This is what would happen if members of Rush and Skafe formed a band by Shagra from Dimo Burgir. Okay. <laughs> so, I think avant-garde technical thrash from that period in the late 80s, like Watchtower and so on, melded with all over the place experimental black and death metal like Behold the Octopus and Gore Guts and all those stuff. And nice. then it's super duper heavy and aggressive, like Flesh God Apocalypse and um, Cosmic Purification, like this kind of s- epic and symphonic death metal, but it's very dirty and very heavy. Um, it's a wild, wild ride, very intense and, and fast and aggressive album. Um, and you're, if you're a fan of any of those things that I mentioned, then you owe it to yourself uh, to listen to this. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. It's cool as hell. It's very cool. The cover art is also bizarre. Um, enjoy. <laughs> Thanks for listening, for sure. Yeah. Uh, pick we'll up this book time. as well. It's very yeah. short. You get free in a couple of days. It's great. Um, we're going to be back. I'm going to be back myself, uh, minus these other two uh, stooges. <laughs> and um, I'm going to be talking to uh, a lady named uh, Yara Ro- Rodriguez Fowler. She's put out mm-hmm. a book called... Um, Fuck, I can't even remember her name. Uh, I'll edit that in. Um, but it's a really great book about uh, Brexit, surprisingly enough, and also uh, political goings-on in Brazil. And it's just like the employees. It has virtually no plot, but it is so yeah, evocative and beautiful in, in a, the, the complete opposite way of the employees. It's very earthly and um, very yeah, down-to-earth, human yeah really great book but uh, i'll be talking to her really soon and um yeah we should do that uh what's it called um got it over there uh terminal something there's also that book that you sent me like the post-apocalypse one yeah that's the one i'm that's what i'm thinking of the one um that's uh not to name drop or anything but uh the one that um john darnell yeah. Uh, America's greatest living singer songwriter uh, recommended that we, <laughs> we um, uh, well and fan of show and fan of the show friend yeah. of the show yeah a fan of the show he he used the word fan of the show so <laughs> we're, he's we're transcending the, the usual podcast of friend of the show thing yeah uh, yeah self described fan of the show uh, said we should read terminal terminal radiance we will I'm trying to crane my neck to see it on my bookcase but um, we will be getting around to that at some point. Oh, and also the new uh, Atesha Moshfei book. Uh, yeah, I'm 
I'm going lots there. Lots to read. Lots to read. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll keep listening to weird and loud and scary music for everyone. But, enjoy. Um, enjoy. Mind, death, and death.